I can't believe that it's almost March and we haven't had any snow this winter. And in my opinion, that's a perfect winter. If I could design a winter, it would look like this. And if I could design a podcast, it would look like this. Welcome to the deep end. So welcome in, everybody, to The Deep End. We are so glad that you are here joining us on all platforms available to us through the magic of technology. My name is Tim. I'm the weekly host of this podcast and this show called The Deep End, where we dive into scripture and dive into culture and talk about how the two interact with each other. Hey, do me a favor. Subscribe to youtube.com slash TheDeepEndTV, youtube.com slash TheDeepEndTV. Like the video. That helps us get... The video out, promotes it, sends it to other people's YouTube feed. Welcome to our radio audience on FM 93, 99.3, FM 99.3. Welcome to our Spotify audience. Welcome to our AM audience on WEZE Radio in Boston. Drive home time, 4.45 p.m., Monday through Friday. My name is Tim Hatch, and this is The Deep End, and I am so glad that you are here. Okay, Deep End news, we only have one thing. So this is going to be a real short episode, hopefully, compared to other episodes, because we're not going to talk about news today out there. We're going to talk about uh, news in here. So the only news that I have for you is next week you want to tune in to the Ask Anything Money Edition. Ask Anything Money Edition is for your benefit. We want to help you make better decisions with your finances. And at our church here at uh, Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, and Winsaka, Rhode Island, we started a series called the fool and his money on the weekend. And so on the deep end, we want to supplement that series by allowing you to ask whatever questions you might have about money to us. We will have special guests next week and you can text your questions in. There are no stupid questions. Everybody struggles with money. Did you know that one out of four Americans live paycheck to paycheck regardless of their income level? That's not good. God does not want that for you. He doesn't want you stressed and he doesn't want you depressed about money. So text your questions in. As always, the same number, even though it's a money emphasis next week, 508-316-9333, 508-316-9333, or through email, ask at deepend.tv, and you can be a part of getting those questions answered for yourselves. Okay, so that's the news. That's next week, and I got a lot of content to get to in the Book of Acts, so that's where we're going to go. Let's head into the Book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the cash app with cash tag thedeependtv. Okay, the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 9, and I realized this week that if I keep going at the rate that I'm going through the book of Acts, we will never get through this book. And season 3 of The Deep End will last for two or three years. We don't want that. We want to get through this content for your benefit. So, thus, we go right into the book of Acts today. We're in Acts chapter 9, and we'll get into Acts chapter 10. And most of Acts chapter 10. So hopefully, by God's grace, we will finish off the book of Acts before we know it. But we don't want to rush, because the word of God is rich and full. Okay, Now, before we get there, though, I have a question. Wouldn't you like to experience a lot of the things that we're talking about on this show? And by that, I mean, I love talking about the geography of Israel. I love talking about the places of Israel. And especially in this episode, we will be talking about all kinds of places in Israel. 
showing you some maps again, showing you some pictures. I went there two years ago, loved every moment of it. It was a life-changing event. You want to check it out, you can check out my blog, timhetchlive.com, and you can check out uh, the Israel Post from a couple years ago. I recapped the whole trip. Maybe that'll just whet your appetite for this trip. I'm hosting a trip in 2021. Want you to be there. 2021. Hey, for more information, do me a favor. Go to waterschurch.org slash trip. Waterschurch.org slash trip. We plan to go on this trip a year from now. So it's expensive. I'm not going to lie. It's expensive. But if you start saving now, you could pay for it cash by the time the trip comes up. And we just want to get your information. So if you're interested at all, please visit waterschurch.org slash trip. Let us know. Give us your information. And then we want to send you information, let you know about interest meetings and get you the details on what the trip looks like. So instead of just hearing me talk about it, you can actually know what it's like to actually walk where Jesus walked, where Paul walked, where Peter walked. It is so cool. It is so eye-opening. And it's going to change your life. Trust me. Visit waterschurch.org slash trip. Okay. The title of this content today is That All Nations Might See. And the subtitle is Getting Over Ourselves to Get the Message Out. The book of Acts is about getting the gospel out. Remember, that's the theme of the book of Acts. For Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, in uh, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the other parts, uttermost parts of the earth. So the theme of the book is <laughs> get the message out to as far and as wide as possible. So we are going to see how this operates, how this continues to happen right through the book of Acts, which reminds us that the church is a mission organization. It is not a social club. It is a mission organization. And any church, any group of people that call themselves Christians and don't have a heart for people far from God um, have forsaken their God-given identity. We want to maintain what God started doing in the book of Acts. That's why we're starting studying this book. That's why this book is in the Bible. It's why it follows the four Gospels. It's because this is what the church looks like. The church moves out and moves on to tell people about Jesus. So last week, we were in uh, Acts chapter 9, talking about the conversion, the great momentous conversion of who? Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. And you would think that because of that momentous conversion, that the book of Acts would just start talking about Paul and his life from that point forward. But it doesn't. Actually, it's going to turn back. It's going to actually kind of go back to a former main character in the book of Acts named Peter. Remember Peter? Remember Pentecost Peter, who preached boldly before the very people who put Jesus on the cross, and, and he told them, with your wicked hands, you, you put to death the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and then 3,000 people were saved, and then Acts chapter 4, he heals, well, actually chapter 3, he heals the lame man at the beautiful gate, and then he preaches another sermon, another 2,000 people get saved, and then as Peter, like, throughout the first portion of the book of Acts, and then it kind of moves on from Peter and the apostles, and we talked about this, moves on to Stephen, and then Philip. A lot of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Well, guess what? After Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, we're going back to Peter again, which is really cool. Um, so Peter is going to start moving with the Spirit of God to do something that is absolutely essential to the movement of Christianity. And what that thing is, is moving the gospel from the Jews, God's ancient people, Israel, to the nations. Peter is going to, listen to these key words, open the door for the Gentiles. Now, to get into this content, we've got to do a little bit of backtracking. I want to take us back to a key moment 
in the ministry of Jesus with the apostles, with the disciples. Before they were apostles, they were disciples. A key moment that Peter had with Jesus in a town called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I want to show you a picture because, again, I was there in Israel, and this is what you will see if you come with us next year. This is Caesarea Philippi, uh, or at least the remains of it. The buildings that you see in the picture there, they, aren't, they weren't there when Peter and, and Jesus were there, but the Right below those buildings you see in the picture, that's the excavation of the original city where Peter and Jesus and the disciples would have slept and would have lived for a few days as Jesus brought them through that area to spread the gospel. It's really cool. It's up in the northeast part of Israel. It's right on the border of Lebanon, near the Golan Heights, something that you still hear about in uh, the news all the time. The Golan Heights is very, very tense, very war-torn area. Anyway, Jesus brought his disciples to Caesarea Philippi And at Caesarea Philippi, something significant happened. It's back in Matthew chapter 16. And I just want to give you some context before we get to the text. Uh, In Caesarea Philippi, there is an ancient cave. There's a a cave that was an ancient grotto, a grotto, this kind of like natural spring water that filled this cave. And and at the time of Jesus and his disciples in the ancient world, this grotto, this, this spring or this water in the cave, they didn't know how deep it was. They didn't they didn't know how far down it went. They just assumed it went all the way down to the center of the earth or even under the earth. They went and, and, and they considered it a pagan shrine. The ancients believed that this was the gateway. Now, this is so interesting. The ancients believed that this was the gateway, that little cave there, and this is at the base of a mountain in Caesarea Philippi. That cave was the gateway to Hades, the gateway to Hades. And the gods of the unworld uh, went down there every fall, and lived down there for the winter, and then every spring they would come up, and then they would fertilize the earth, and the crops would bear fruit because of the pagan gods. And so every spring, the pagan nations would gather around this grotto, this cave, and they would perform sex acts uh, in the name of their religion and all kinds of, you know, (laughs) terrible, licentious worship practices to garner favor from the pagan gods, and hopefully they would come to life again, and they would, you know, fertilize their crops, and they would have food. They called it, this is interesting, they called it the gate of hell, the gates of hell. I have a picture here from my time there. That's that's the cave in the background. When I was there, it was like dry, which was kind of interesting, but anyway. You can get more information this, about this from Ray Vanderlaan at uh, thattheworldmayknow.com. He's a fantastic resource on the ancient world. But anyway, to the pagan mind, this cave held the gods of the underworld. And Jesus brought his disciples to that town. And then he asked them that very important question. Matthew chapter 16, he says, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples are like, well, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And he says, okay, that's fine. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? You remember this? Simon Peter, Matthew chapter 16, fantastic moment. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Remember, he said this right at that gate, right at that gate of Hades. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates, oh, look at that. Isn't that cool? It's so cool to go to Israel and see what's the background behind these texts. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Jesus takes his disciples right to that locale to ask him, who do you say I am? And when Peter confesses that he is the Christ, 
Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're going to be the rock. You're going to be one of my solid foundations on which I will build my church. And the gates of hell, what the pagans think is unstoppable, this unfathomable darkness in the underworld, that power will not stand against what I'm going to do through you. Isn't that cool? This is what you see when you go to Israel. Anyway, let's go on, verse 19, because this is what I want to point out. Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the most misinterpreted phrases of Jesus comes next. I have seen this verse used for what it does not intend for my entire life. Now, let me read it, and I'll tell you what the misinterpretation is. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the most misinterpreted phrase from Jesus in my life. I've ne- <laughs> I can't say it enough, strongly enough. Here's what most people think that means. Most people think Jesus is saying, uh, if you bind demons, they're going to be bound in heaven. Well, demons aren't in heaven. <laughs> I don't know where we get that. Because he's talking about binding on earth and bounding in heaven, and then loosing on earth and loosing in heaven. And so we think, oh, that means that we get to bind demons. No, Jesus bound demons through the uh, cross, through the resurrection, okay? He is the champion who binds the strong man. That's another passage, okay? He bound Satan to to uh, keep Satan from stopping the mission of the church. But that's not what this text is about in Matthew chapter 16. What this text is about, Peter and the disciples totally would have picked up on right away. Because binding and loosing in uh, ancient Israel was a rabbinical term. And it referred to uh, the rabbinical practice of bringing people into community and excommunicating them from community, binding and loosing. So when a rabbi bound something, what he was basically saying was, uh, I bind this practice for our community, meaning this practice is not lawful for our community or this practice is. That's, that's binding or loosing. And, and then if people didn't practice the binding and loosing concepts of the community, the rabbi would excommunicate them. So now listen to what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's saying, listen, I'm going to give you Peter. Remember, he's talking to Peter. I'm going to give you, and actually he's talking to all the disciples, the keys of the kingdom, and you're going to bind and loose members of the kingdom. In other words, it's no longer the rabbis who call the shots on who gets into God's covenantal community. No, you, my 12, are the new binding and loosing agents. You are the new doors. You are the new... Um, guardians of the gates, if you will, that let people in or push and keep people out of the covenant community. Now, Peter has already done this because remember, Peter is the one that spoke to Ananias and Sapphira and they instantly died. Peter is the one who spoke to Simon the magician and said, your money shall perish with you. And he instantly realized that he was out of the covenant community. So Peter and the disciples are given this authority, the keys. Think about keys. What are keys? What do keys do in our world? They, they open doors and they, and they start cars, but there was no cars in the ancient world, right? So the only thing they did in the ancient world were they opened doors. So Peter is given this opportunity to open the door. This is so cool. This is so important for where we're going. To open the door 
to new different kinds of people to come into the covenant community that Jesus came to establish. And friends, that is what Acts chapter 9 to 15 is all about. It's going to take the Jews, the Jewish followers of Jesus, six, uh, let's see, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, seven chapters in the book of Acts. It's going to take them seven chapters to sort this idea out that Jesus is the hope not just for Israel, but for Gentiles. And everybody who's not Jewish said, thank you. I mean, it might have taken them a long time, but at least it happened, and it all comes to a head in Acts chapter 15. So this is kind of like the instigation of all this, to open the door for lost Gentiles to come in, you and I, non-Jewish people. That's why this is so cool. That's why I took you back to Matthew chapter 16, and that's where what's going to open our eyes for what happens here in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Let's get into it. Acts 9, 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, that's an important town we're going to talk about. We're going to circle back to that name at the end of this episode. So listen to the end. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, remember I said, we have just finished hearing about the conversion of Paul, Saul, to Paul, who becomes this defender of the faith, this proclaimer of Jesus, the one who wanted to kill Christians, now proclaiming Christ. Well, remember that at the end of that episode, the Hellenists um, who were coming to Christ did not want to hear from Paul. They wanted to kill him. So he leaves and he goes back home to Tarsus. And now, this is important. Because Acts um, doesn't tell us dates, we, we, we don't see it for what it is, but now you're going to see between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11, there's a 10-year period where Paul is literally out of sight and out of mind in the church's mission. Paul is in Tarsus. He's at home for 10 years. He's, he's now taken a back seat to the mission. He comes back into the picture when Barnabas picks him up for a missionary journey in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, but right now he's not part of the story. Now we turn back to Peter, and Peter does something for Paul. Because remember that Paul is the apostle that God has called to go to the Gentiles, and he will become the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, not so much. Peter actually doesn't really go to many Gentile places. Peter really deals with Jews and Hebrews. And, and even when he writes to them in his epistles, he's writing to a lot of exiled Jews who were scattered to Asia Minor by uh, Emperor Claudius's edict in AD 51. But anyway, Peter, however, in this moment, is going to start walking a path that leads him to blaze a trail for Paul to take the Gospels to the Gentiles. Why am I telling you all this? Because it's so important that you get this. It's a picture of the church. Peter is the, the one who opens the door. He's the one who turns the key and unlocks the door. And it is Paul who walks through that door and takes the Gospel far and wide across the known world. Peter is the trailblazer, and Paul is the leader. This is an important picture for the church. God typically does this. God has trailblazers, and then he has lead actors. He's done this a lot. Moses was a trailblazer, and Joshua became the lead actor, right? That's, in, that's way back in Exodus and all the way through Joshua. 
Uh, Saul is the trailblazer of, of the king, but it is David who becomes the lead actor, even in the Gospels. It is John the Baptist who is the trailblazer, and it is Jesus who actually becomes the lead actor. What does this have to do with you? Here's what it has to do with you. You might be the trailblazer for someone else who will be the lead actor. I've seen this happen in my own life. I've seen this happen in the church, in my own generation. I think that there are Moses generations, and I think that there are Joshua generations. I think that there are Moses generations, even in America, for the church to make inroads into different cultures, into different generations. And what one generation fights for, the following generation benefits from. Uh, For instance, there were guys who came before me who fought for uh, the church to have modern music, uh, the church to kind of like wor- stop worrying about everybody dressing up for church and to kind of have a more of a relaxed atmosphere so that people who don't, you know, feel comfortable coming to a church where there's a lot of high, you know, high level rules about coming into community, those people could come. I think about John Wimber. I think about, um, oh, who's the guy that was the uh, founder of the Righteous Brothers? Who was that guy? Was it John Wimber? I forget. Anyway. John Wimber, oh, Chuck Smith, these guys who really opened the door for the gospel to go into the uh, Jesus movement, the hippies who were getting saved in the 1970s, and they tried to go to church, and they couldn't because they they didn't dress like church people. So, you know, Chuck Smith is out there in California saying, come to my church, I need people. And so this modern movement of cool church starts in L.A. in the 1970s, and it spreads across the United States, and a whole new people group are open to the gospel. And I think about how those guys were trailblazers, and a lot of the pastors who were, are successful in today's generation are lead actors. And, and a lot of times we don't get this, but this is how the church moves. You might be a trailblazer, and you're going to have to fight through those barriers, and somebody else is going to benefit and do far better and go far further than you. But that's, that's okay. It's a team, right? That's, a, that's what we got to realize. It's a team. Some of you are trailblazers at work. You're, you're trailblazers of Christian witness at work, and it's hard for you, but you might be build setting it up in that workplace for you know Christians to not be hated and vilified in that workplace and you're setting it up for lead actors to follow you. I think about in, in the political realm. We we need trailblazers in the political realm right now who are going to make inroads uh, with gospel representation, Christian representation in our political process, and the people who follow them will be lead actors. This is how the Lord works, and sometimes God asks you to do something hard that's going to benefit someone who comes after you. Can you be okay with that? Can you be a trailblazer so that somebody else can benefit? Well, anyway, Peter is a trailblazer starting in Lydda. Just remember that. I put it up on the screen again, right there at the end of verse 32, Lydda. So he goes and he sees this guy in the and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. And I love Peter's words. Jesus heals you, not me, Jesus. Anybody ever tells you they heal you, they're wrong. It's Jesus Christ who heals. It is only Jesus Christ who heals. So a lot of people, they go throughout the country, they go around the world, they talk about how they have a healing ministry. Let me tell you something very carefully. No person has a healing ministry. Jesus is the healer. The Holy Spirit is the healer. We are the agents that he uses to heal people, but we are not the healing agents. And this is perfectly exhibited here by Peter in verse 34. So anyway, he heals Aeneas. Aeneas gets up. I love the fact that Peter tells him, make your bed. (laughs) Isn't that just so cool? (laughs) All right, now take care of things and then move on. Anyway, what happens? People turn to the Lord. And that's the point of miracles. The point of miracles is not to show off. The point of miracles is to lead people to Jesus. Anyway, look what happens next. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa. So Peter's in Lydda, 
in a little bit of ways, about three hours by walking, three hours away by walking, there's a, there's a town called Joppa. And in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. A lot of times, two names in the Bible means that they have an Aramaic name, Tabitha in this case, and a Greek name, Dorcas in this case, and they both are, mean the same thing, which in this case means gazelle. Tabitha, Aramaic, Dorcas, Greek, for gazelle. Okay, anyway. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. That's kind of interesting because they're not burying her. They're laying her up in an upper room. And verse 38 says, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. Now, he's going to go there. Now, just before we get to the healing here, I want you to notice the word Dor- the name Dorcas, still alive and well today in this, uh, in this age. Um, some of you have been Christians long enough to hear of a, of, a, of a society called the Dorcas Society. It was started in the late 1800s, uh, started by a woman named Kate Douglas Wiggin, uh, who was the founder of the first um, kindergarten and a, a devout Christian and was inspired by this text to start an organization to sew clothing uh, for the poor. Uh, and, and by the way, Kate Douglas Wiggin also wrote the book Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. So it's just incredible how this moment actually still has cultural resonance even to this day. Sunny, like Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, very well-known, very famous book. Anyway, um, Scripture just has so much impact on our society, we don't, even, we don't even realize. I just wanted to point that out. Moving on, verse 39, here's what happens. So Peter rose and went with them. He, tra- he travels three hours away by foot, to go to Joppa. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. Now, look what Peter's doing. He's putting them all outside. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus did with the little girl that he raised from the dead. He put the mourners outside. But then notice what else he does, and this is so important. And Peter knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And then she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Okay, I want you to see that Peter, who just got done healing Aeneas in Lydda by just saying, Jesus Christ heals you, get up, is called over to this house to raise um, Dorcas, Tabitha, from the dead. And he doesn't just kind of pompously just assume, I'm God's healing agent, and I'm just going to do what I did back then. No, he stops, he kneels, he prays. Why is that important? Because sometimes we have to remember that what God does in one thing, he might not do in another thing. What God does at one age, he doesn't do in another age. Here's what we do. We discern the will of the Lord. How do we discern the will of the Lord? Through prayer. And Peter walks in that room with the body there, and he nails down and he prays. I just, I just see Peter, the apostle, praying and saying, Lord, what do you want to do here? And obviously he heard from the Lord, and the Lord said, I want you to t- raise her from the dead. And so he does. But here's the point. Don't always assume that God's going to always use you in one certain way. This is the importance of daily prayer and devotion for yourself personally, to say, Lord, what are you up to today? What are you up to today? I want to be part of what you're doing today. I don't want to expect that what you did yesterday you're going to do today. And sometimes we have to have that kind of experience, that day-by-day experience, wherein Jesus leads us to do good today, maybe in different ways, maybe in new ways, maybe in more challenging ways, but let's have a prayer life that keeps us connected to his voice so that we can be a blessing to those that he sends us to. Okay, so um, all this is going to build up to the gospel of the Gentiles, and I'm just painting a picture for you. 
through these last verses in uh, Acts chapter 9. Verse 41. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa. Again, Joppa. This is important. The scripture is not just repeating these names by accident. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, that's important, too. Just, so many details that you think, well, what, why, why, does this, why does Luke bother to include this? Okay, remember, Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and every word matters. Let me tell you why that matters, why Simon a tanner matters. I've been to Joppa. This is the, um, you know, I don't know if this is really the house, but anyway, this is a picture that I took, and you can see over the door, uh, is they wrote uh, House of Simon the Tanner. And, you know, one thing about Israel is that they know <laughs> they know that their land is a tourist attraction for three groups of people, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, right? So they're, they kind of work. So I don't think that this is literally the house of Simon the Tanner. But anyway, this, per, this certain family, I guess it's the Zacharian family. You can see it on the door there. They decided to say, hey, let's just call this the house of Simon the Tanner. So a lot of people go there and they visit to kind of have the experience of being in the ancient world and walking in the footsteps of Peter. What we do know is that that is where it was. We just don't know that that was the house. Anyway, what is across the street from Simon the Tanner's house is this building. And you can see this is a picture of me there from two years ago. Um, that's, uh, that church is called St. Peter's, obviously, because St. Peter is going to have an experience here in Joppa that changes all of our lives because it's going to be from Joppa, from this moment, from this position, that he's going to hear from God, that it's time to turn the key and open the door to non-Jewish people to hear about Jesus. So important. Oh, by the way, just put that picture back up on the screen because you can see that there are palm trees. You need more motivation to go to Israel? Palm trees, baby. Great weather. <laughs> There's this little known fact about Israel's weather. Only 3% of the world's landscape has that perfect of a weather pattern every year, all year round, and Israel is right there. So... You know, Jesus went there because it was good weather, right? <laughs> he, was, he was smart. He was smart about the weather. Okay, anyway, moving on. He is at the house of a guy named Simon, who is a tanner. Okay, important bridge for where Peter is about to go. Tanning was a profession in the ancient world that was considered unclean by Jews. Why was it considered unclean? Because they dealt with what? They're tanning hides, right? They're tanning animal skins. So they dealt with dead bodies. So even the rabbis would say, woe to him who was a tanner. Tanners were suspected of immorality because women worked in the trade. And many were repulsed by the trade simply because of the stench of the animal carcasses. Jews also had concerns about the ritual purity of tanners because of their contact with, obviously, dead bodies and blood. Okay? Peter's staying with this man. Now, now Simon is probably a Jew who's working in an unclean, quote-unquote, unclean profession according to Jewish customs. This is important because Peter is literally rubbing shoulders with this guy who his, his community considers unclean. And it's really cool because here's where Peter is going to have a heavenly vision that the gospel needs to go from the Jews, clean people, to the Gentiles, quote-unquote, unclean people. And it just kind of shows us that this is how God works in our lives. He usually puts us in a place where he's going to prepare us for what he has prepared for us. It's a great phrase. I love it. I use it all the time in my ministry. But God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. Where you are is not um, 
happenstance in God's economy. It is not circumstantial. It is designed to prepare you for where he wants to lead you. And that's what we're going to see here in Peter's life. He's with Simon the Tanner, the unclean, un, uncouth, if you will, uh, Jewish uh, guy who's hosting him in where? In Joppa. Okay, let's move on. Turn the page, Acts chapter 10. Verse 1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Uh, okay, stop there. Because this is not the Caesarea we just talked about in Matthew chapter 16. I want to put this up on the screen here. This is a map. So there's two Caesareas in Israel. There's Caesarea Philippi up here, Matthew chapter 16, on this rock, keys to the kingdom, yada, yada, yada. Now, Acts chapter 10, we are in Caesarea, uh, the, um, the um, what should we call it, the port city, if you will. Uh, this is where Cornelius is from, Acts chapter 10. So that just gives you a little bit of background. Uh, these are pictures that I took of Caesarea. Uh, that's the town, the ancient port city that Herod the Great built. Uh, that is a Roman aqueduct, a very uh, incredible and impressive structure that was built by Herod the Great to uh, funnel water into the city or from the city into other areas of uh, the country. And then this is a replica of a stone that they found through archaeology with the name Pilate on it. So you can see in written in uh, Roman letters, you can see the word Pilate right there. It is a significant architectural ar archaeological find because it verifies the fact that Pilate was a real person in history. It wasn't just this fable in the scriptures. Really cool. Anyway, bring all that up to bring us back to this moment. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian, Italiano cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Okay, now remember, what the text wants us to see is that this guy is a centurion. Centurion is not Jewish. He's of the Italian cohort or the Italian regiment. He's not Jewish. He's, he's completely Gentile. But he's a devout man who fears God. Now, there's, there's this group of people in ancient Israel who were called God-fearers. And God-fearers were people who had a certain kind of faith in the God of Israel. Here was the faith that they had. They honored and respected the Jewish faith, but they weren't willing to convert. Now you ask, well, why weren't they willing to convert? Because there was this little procedure <laughs> for men <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of kept them at bay with adopting full conversion into the Jewish faith. And yeah, the snip-snip. Michael, my producer over here, is giving me the old snip-snip with the fingers. Okay, so, you know, circumcision kept a lot of dudes... Uh, respecting Judaism from afar, okay? Anyway, he's got what we call a God-fearing mindset. He's praying. Uh, he's giving alms. That means he's generous to the poor. And he's praying at the ninth hour, which is a significant kind of prayer because the ninth hour was a determined hour of prayer for the Jews. They, they offered the evening sacrifice. Ninth hour means 3 p.m., uh, they offer the evening sacrifice. And so he's praying, and he's kind of practicing the Jewish faith. Now you say, well, why would a guy who's a Roman centurion be so interested in the Jewish faith? I mean, think about it. The Romans were the occupiers of Israel. The Romans were 
the United, what the United States is to Afghanistan, the occupying force a couple of years ago anyway. You know, why would this, that's like a, 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 an, a, an American general uh, worshiping the, uh, the Muslim gods out of respect for who he sees in Afghanistan. Here we have Cornelius, this occupying general in the army, and he's devout in the, this little small nation, the size of New Jersey's, uh, religious practices. Well, why? Because you know why? He saw their lives. He saw how they lived. He saw how they had respect for one another. They practiced the law. And because they practiced the law, there was just a, a real stability to their lives. Uh, one of the things about the Old Testament laws is that it brought, it brought respect to people that other nations did not respect. It considered giving to the poor admirable and honorable. And in ancient Rome, if you gave to the poor, it was like throwing your money away. Nobody respected you for that. You only gave to people who could pay you back. So, so he sees in this little Jewish sect, this little Jewish religion, this, this lifestyle that doesn't lend to uh, vilification and hatred of others or, or demeaning those who are weak and infirm. He sees, he sees this respect for humanity, this dignity of human life, and, and he likes it. It's attractive to him. But I want you to notice that in spite of his prayers, in spite of his devout, God-fearing attitude, and in spite of his alms, he still needs Jesus. He, he's not there yet. He's not saved yet, okay? That, thus, the reason why um, the, the angel is about to say to him what he's about to say to him. So let's go ahead in the text here. Uh, it says in verse 5, and now he says, send men to where? Again, this, this is repeated again and again for a reason. Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel spoke to him, uh, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of, his, uh, two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he is a Gentile, occupying force general over Israel. Um, he's, he's respected because of his good works and his admiration for the Jewish uh, laws and the Jewish God. But remember that, that the Romans were by and large hated and vilified by the Jews because they didn't, they didn't like the fact that they owned their land. They had occupying power and authority over the promised land. And they always just kind of wanted the Romans off their back. That's what they asked Jesus to do. Will you finally get the Romans off our backs? He's like, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to get sin off your back. Anyway, here we have this guy who's sending to Joppa to ask for a messenger from God who's going to be Simon Peter to come and tell him about the God of Israel. Sound familiar? Why do I emphasize this? Because it's happened before. Let me take you back to another passage of Scripture. It's in Jonah chapter 1. You remember Jonah, right? Jonah, fish, vomit, Nineveh, right? What does God say to Jonah? Go to Nineveh. Well, what is Nineveh? Nineveh is not Jewish. What is, what is Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, not Jewish. And Assyria was the encroaching, occupying force over Israel who will one day demolish the northern tribes of Israel and take over their land. And Jonah knows this. And he does not want to share the message of God, the message of Israel, with that pagan nation. And so what does he do? He runs. Where does he run? This is so cool. I love how, Christ, I love how Scripture comes together. Jonah 1.3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. The very city that Peter is going to be called on from this Roman-occupying general to hear the message of the God of the Jews is the same city that Jonah ran from that mission from. So cool. Anyway, back to the text. Uh, said to Joppa, he uh, called for this Peter, and then verse 9, it says this, The next day, as they were on their way, on their journey, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So Peter's praying at noon the next day, and he became hungry. Of course, it's noon. All men get hungry at noon. <laughs> And he wanted something to eat, and they were preparing it, and he fell into a trance. Verse 11, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. There are so many details here. So this great sheet is descending from the heavens. At the, uh, at the time that Peter is praying, remember Peter is a devout Jew, praying, four corners, heavens, sheet, Okay. Uh, upon the earth, verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Okay, there's a picture that you've got to see here that's so cool, it ties to the Old Testament. Peter is being shown something that was kind of sacred, actually not kind of, was sacred, very sacred to the Jewish people. It was called the prayer shawl, and I have one here um, to show you. This is uh, a prayer shawl, Jewish prayer shawl, it's called a talit. And it's got four corners, and on each corner, there is this long tassel. This is all in the, in the law. Numbers 15, 38 says, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners uh, of their garments throughout their generations to put a cord of blue uh, on the tassel of each corner. So <clears throat> this is available now today for sale all over Israel if you go. <laughs> I got this from the local Christian bookstore here. But it's... Um, Covered with blue and white. Blue is the cover of the glory of God, according to ancient Israel. And then gold, the cover of royalty, the color of royalty. White, the color of purity. And uh, devout Jews still to this day wear a four-cornered garment underneath their clothes with these tassels that hang low from their clothing. If you go to Israel, you'll see this all over uh, Jerusalem. But it's a prayer shawl. It's, pr it's what they they. If, if you if you go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall you'll see them with this prayer shawl over their shoulders and they'll be rubbing the tassels. The tassels are tied up in knots. Uh, there's, you know, there's this hypothesis that there's 613 knots based on the number of strings in the knots. Anyway, the 613 referred to the 613 laws of the Pentateuch, on and on and on it goes. These are called the tzitzis. And the tzitzis were the tassels. And the tassels, the, the word tzitzi actually acts up through Hebrew numbering to 613 as well. Anyway, the four tassels of the four corners refer to the Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 7 says, God says, I'll bring you out, I'll deliver you, I'll redeem you, and I'll take you to be my people. Four things. I'll bring you out, I'll deliver you, I'll redeem you, and I will take you to be my people. So these four tassels on these four corners, tradition came to refer to those four tassels um, these tassels came to refer to those four acts of redemption of Israel. Now you say, well, what does all this have to do with what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 10? Peter is seeing on top of a heavenly prayer cloth uh, animals, reptiles, and birds. What are those? Those are unclean creatures according to the law. 
Peter's seeing unclean creatures being let down from heaven on a very sacred, traditional prayer cloth. God's trying to speak to this Jewish boy. (laughs) He's trying to send a message that God is trying, going to reach out to the unclean. So God says to him in verse 13, there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Let's stop there for a second, (laughs) because this is what I love about the book of Acts. If you're writing this in this fable, you don't include the fact that Peter starts arguing with God here, but he does. And remember that Peter was the one who rebuked Jesus. By no means, Lord, shall you be crucified. I just find it hilarious that he's he's rebuking Jesus even as Jesus speaks from heaven. Like, this guy can't stop rebuking Jesus. Anyway, by no means, Lord. Like, don't you know who you're talking to? This is Peter. I always think you're out of, your, out of your mind. Anyway, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, said, What God has made clean... Do not call common. This happened three times. Why is three times important? Because there are three that bear testimony in heaven. First John says this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is saying, we all agree about this, Peter. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. The last part of verse 16. So Peter's first off saying, I have never. And that's that's the language of ancient Israel regarding unclean foods. There was all kinds of dietary laws on the books in the book of Leviticus. You can read it for yourself. On what was clean, what was not clean. So to this day, Orthodox Jews do not eat pig. Uh, They do not eat shellfish. And these laws are often confusing to us. If you ever read the Old Testament, you'll probably say, what are these all about? You have to see God speaking to the ancient people in ways that they could understand that would illustrate spiritual principles. Here's what ancient Israel was asked to believe about life through the laws of the clean and the unclean. Here's what they were asked to believe. There are ways to approach God, and there are ways not to approach God. They were also being taught how to worship God rightly and distinctly from the pagan nations around them in the ancient world. Ancient world pagan worship practices of their gods usually included two things, food and sex. Food and sex. So pagans, ancient pagan practices, we have scores of history books on this, they usually had these, these gorging, gluttonous feasts that they would just basically fatten themselves on and worship to their gods, and then they would have these sexual orgies in worship to their god, because those two things really weren't about worshiping god, they were actually about worshiping their own lusts, okay? Israel was supposed to be separate from that. So Israel is given this dietary law. You're not going to worship me with gorging yourself. And you're going to be distinct and different. And you're going to have three meals a day. And every time, three days, every day, three times a day, you're going to remember through what you eat that you are my people. You are not those people. I just think it's so cool when you see it through that, through that lens. But then the second thing is sex. Sex is not to be a part of your worship practice. That's what God was saying. So that's why in Leviticus 16 through 17, you have all these all these kind of gross laws, if you read it, it's kind of gross. God talks about all the kind of bodily discharges that a guy could have and a girl could have. And it's like, if he has it, he's unclean and he can't go to worship. And if she has this, she's unclean and she can't go to worship and yada, yada, yada. And you say, well, what's all that about? God is telling ancient Israel, sex is not to be a part of your worship experience because that's what the pagan nations do. But you're not going to do it. By the way, modern Americans... (laughs) We still worship sex and food as gods. We really do. We, 
we talk about food in religious terms. We're like, oh, this, this cheesecake is heaven. You know, it's like, no, it's not. It's cheese. It's dairy products that have been chilled, people. Like, relax, okay? And then sex. Sex has become this, like, this, this deity in our age. I think of the famous song, Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars, which the lyrics are just absolutely insane. He talks about this in the song. The lyrics go, you bring me to my knees, you make me testify. You can make a sinner change his ways. Open up your gaze because I, I can't wait to see the light. And right there is where I want to stay because your sex takes me to paradise. I mean, even to this day, the pagans around us think that sex is this gateway to heaven. It's not. It's a bodily function for the procreation of the species. I mean, it is, it is, it is a good thing, yes, but it is not the ultimate thing. And so Israel is being taught through these clean and unclean laws that they're distinct, they're different, and they are not to bring food and sex, gluttony and orgies into their worship experience. And there's another reason for this. Because it's healthy. Because it's healthy. This is going to sustain you as a people. This is going to make you stronger than those pagan nations. This is what Cornelius the centurion saw in Israel. He saw this little group of people who lived according to this book, and they lived better lives, healthier lives, stronger lives. Why? Because they did not do the things that pagans did with their bodies. And so, Peter is being told by God, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. In other words, all animals as of now are clean. And this is a picture that, that Peter is being provided by heaven that all people now can be made clean. Because Israel was the clean or holy people of God and all the nations were unclean. Well, guess what? Now that the food, well, now that all animals are clean, guess what? All nations are now considered clean. All nations, if they hear and respond, can come into a living relationship with the God of Israel. And this is so important for Peter to see. He's seeing God's heart for the nations. Pastoral point, by the way. Don't, God is telling people, don't judge people by their past. Don't judge people by where they come from. God can change them. God may have already started to change them. They, they are now new creatures in Christ. That's, that's an important pastoral point. And for some of you, you need to hear me say this, don't judge you by your past. Like, you keep telling yourself, I can never forgive myself for what I did. Wait, wait, you're judging yourself for something that God has already forgiven you of, and you need to stop that. And that's the pastoral point that Peter is being uh, taught here in Acts chapter 10. Anyways, pointing to a larger mission. Here we go. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men... This is all cooperate, all coordinated by God. The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Going on, verse 21, And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. There it is again, God-fearing who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest, and the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now you have to see here that this is very uncomfortable for Peter. God has to speak to him with the vision from heaven three times as he protests that he's not going to touch unclean things. 
And at the very time that happens, the guests from Cornelius' house, or the messengers from Cornelius' house, show up at Simon's house. God is, is, is kind of forcefully, yet lovingly, getting his servant to open the door with the key. Open the door, Peter. There are people I'm going to reach, and you need to get with it. <laughs> so verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. So I love it because Cornelius already has like this small group that he's ready to hear the gospel with. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And I love that. Again, Peter's not looking for glory. Same thing when he said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, not me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And verse 28 says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And that's the case for all Christians. We should never call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why did you send for me? Okay, Peter's uncomfortable. You can tell because you don't say things like, like that unless you're uncomfortable with being there. And he's made a profound miscalculation that God is asking him to get over. It is a miscalculation that Christians still to this day can make. And the miscalculation is this. Closeness or separateness unto God is a reason to see yourself as superior or better than others. It's a miscalculation by Peter here and also by Christians down through the ages. That closeness or separateness unto God is a reason to boast of superiority or being better than other people. Wrong. Being a Christian does not make you better than anybody. Being God's people does not make us superior. Do you know what it makes us? It makes us messengers. We are not superior. We are messengers. We, 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 are, we are not um, better than we are here for the betterment of other people through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this miscalculation, I want to make sure that we're, because it's all going to tie together in just a moment. This miscalculation has been the problem for Christian mission for 2,000 years. That instead of going to the people that are not like us, we close ourselves in with all the people that are like us. We like the people that we like. We like the people who vote like us, think like us, act like us, smell like us, teach their kids like us, all that kind of stuff. And instead of going out to the people who are far from God, we're more comfortable with being with the people that are very, what we deem as close to God. This creates legalism. This creates uh, high-mindedness. This creates that holier-than-thou spirit that the world can't stand. And this was Israel's problem. In fact, it was Israel's problem for much of Israel's history because the movement started with a guy named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is called, God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. But then he says in verse 4, through you... Abraham, and all the blessing that I'm going to pour into you, all the nations, plural, nations of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, Abraham, your calling to be great is for the nations to hear about the greatness of your God. That's Genesis 12. By the way, God re-ups that emphasis in Deuteronomy chapter 4 at the giving of the law. Moses tells the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is what the law's purpose is. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, uh, that you should keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. What peoples? 
foreign nations, the Gentiles. And when they, what people, who's they? The nations, the Gentiles. When they hear all these statues, the law, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In other words, they will be attracted to you. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him? In other words, the point of the law, Israel, is to make you a great nation so that the other nations will see your greatness and they will say, what God do you serve? We want in on that. The point of Christian um, growth, the, the point of your life improving in Christ is so that people far from Christ will see it and want it. Now, not everybody's going to want it, but some people will, like Cornelius, who will want what's going on in your life. Don't you understand? This is your calling. This is, your, this is not just Israel's miscalculation in the ancient times. This is also many times a Christian's miscalculation in modern times. We are here for people who are not yet here, for people far from God. Isaiah also talks about this. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, and I will keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for who? The nations. Remember Genesis 12, God saying, through you all nations. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 4, the nations. Now in Isaiah chapter 42, the nations will see you. You're here to open their eyes, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. In other words, People of God, people of faith, your life, your mission, your Christianity is only good, is only worthwhile if it helps other people want what you've got. If you turn people off with your Christianity, if you're hypocritical, if you're just as nasty as they are, they don't want it and you're part of the problem. If you, if you, if you think that your Christianity is so that you can keep only your kids safe and blessed and you can prosper and that's it, that's a problem. Your blessing in God is to bless the people far from God so that they might know that the God that you serve is good. You're that agent. And this is the miscalculation that Peter had. This is why God had to speak to him from that vision from heaven. This is what God had to get through to Peter because he's stubborn like a lot of Christians. You're not here to just know me. You're here to make me known. In verse 30, it says this. And Cornelius says four days ago, he basically recounts the events. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, again, recounting it, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I went for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, look at this line, love it. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. See what God did there? So cool. God literally forced Peter, almost forced Peter, but literally pushed Peter to open this door, to turn the key, and to give a gateway to the Gentiles to come and know the God of Israel. What Peter does here is what Jonah refused to do hundreds of years earlier. Look what, look what Cornelius says. We are here in the presence of God to hear what you have to say. Why, why does Luke include presence of God there? Why did Cornelius say that? Do you know why? Because remember, I'll take you back again to Jonah 1.3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found the ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Peter is now in the presence of the Lord because Peter is about to bring the gospel 
to the nations. This is what Israel, this is their ancient calling. This is their holy, sacred obligation to bring the message of Jesus. Now, Jonah failed, remember? And how did Jonah get punished? Three days in the belly of the whale and then vomited back up on the dry land. And he reluctantly went to Nineveh and preached and the Ninevites came to, came to faith in the God of Israel and repented. Well, remember when they talked to Jesus when he's walking around and he's saying, uh, I am the one, I'm the way, the truth, the light. They say, well, what sign are you going to give us? Give us a sign to prove that you're the, really the one. He says, here's the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be in the heart of the earth three days, and I will rise, and all the nations will hear about the gospel. And that's exactly what's happened. We're here on this show talking about Jesus, not Jews, and we're talking about Jesus, and we're worshiping the God of Jesus the true Jew, the true Israelite, the true Jonah, who went to the nations and brought us the hope of God. And I tell you this to back up, way back to Acts chapter 9, 32. Where did it all start? It started in a place called Lydda. We started this episode in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Peter went there, here and there among them all, came down to the saints who lived at Lydda, and there he found a man named Aeneas. That's where it starts. That's where this journey to open the gate for the Gentiles starts. Why is that important? Because if you travel with us to Israel, <laughs> this is so cool, uh, you will be in Lida. That's where you will start. Because guess where the international airport in Israel is located? It's located in Lida. You <laughs> fly into Ben-Gurion Airport right there, and you will, as a Gentile, visit the nation of Israel because you have come to worship the God of Israel, and the, the gateway into Israel for us Gentiles is in Lida. So I encourage you to join us on the trip, Israel 2021. Check it out, waterschurch.org slash trip if you are interested. It will change your life. But we talk about this because this is the heart of God that all nations might see. Number one, why does God call you to send you out? Number two, why does God bless you to make his way known and attractive? And number three, why does God do this to redeem the lost world from sin and shame? That all, may, all, that all nations might see. Jesus is the way. That's the episode. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV, Facebook.com slash the deep end TV. All the Instagram, Twitter, you know, addresses are there for you. But we really want you to subscribe to that one. Please do so. Please like, please subscribe, please comment in the in the comments below. Let us know how the deep end helps you. Send us an email. We would love to hear from you. We thank God for you joining us every single week on Tuesday night. My name is Tim, and this is the deep end. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.